Good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. And uh, if you're new here, my name is Matt Ortiz. And, and uh, if we have not met yet, uh, I would love it if I could already ask you for a favor to introduce yourself to me. Uh, after the service, I'd love uh, to meet you and, and get to know you. Um, if uh, you all were paying attention to the text that was read, um, it was pretty hard to ignore. It's pretty hard not to listen to a text like that. It kind of stands out against a lot of the other texts and scriptures. And you might think that Jesus has some pretty intense things to say about lust. And if you're visiting, you're probably wondering what you got yourself into. I get it. Well, here's the deal. We've been working uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, and now we get to this passage where Jesus talks about sex. So it's next. A lot of people, a lot of people, think the Christian view of sex is that it's bad, that it's repressive, and if you have a sexual desire, you're going to burn in hell. It's kind of a common um, perception, but Jesus doesn't teach that. The biblical understanding of sex is absolutely different than our culture's uh, belief and understanding of sex, but the Christian view of sex is also one of the most attractive things about the Christian faith. I also know that most people uh, at one point in their life, if not all people at some point, struggle in this area of lust, and maybe you're in the middle of it right now, and you're bracing to be shamed for me to yell at you and say, who do you think you are? We don't believe shame changes anybody. We don't believe shame changes you. Jesus does. He came to address our shame. He came to address our brokenness and to bring us hope and redemption and restoration. So let's hear what Jesus has to say, okay? And maybe you could be praying for me throughout this message because there are so many ways to mess up a message like this. There really are, even in, from content to how you deliver it. Um, so let's be prayerful as we work through this. The first thing that we see in this is that sex is sacred. Jesus starts by referring to the seventh commandment, and he says that you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus is is affirming this command here to not commit adultery, but he is not saying that sex is bad. This commandment right here is a loving prohibition against adultery and lust precisely because sex is good, precisely because sex is sacred. Now, you need to understand that even though a lot of Christian culture is, is prudish, about sex, the scripture is not prudish about sex. 
God is pro-sex. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the very first relationship between a husband and a wife. And the first time Adam sees Eve, he breaks into a song. This is a naked man singing to a naked woman in the presence of God with no shame. There's nothing prudish about it. And if you study the book of the Song of Solomon, you'd, you'd be surprised how graphic it actually is. And you find out that some of the translators actually censored some of it. Translators were more prudish than the scriptures were. And the Bible teaches us that the gift of sex can be enjoyed in the proper context of a covenant marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And, and it teaches us, the scriptures teach us the difference between a consumer approach to sex versus a covenant approach to sex. In a consumer relationship, you're pre preoccupied with what's in it for me, right? If you have a business and vendors, you're looking out for the best deal and the relationship lasts as long as the vendor is giving you a good product at the best price, that person is there for you. And if he or she is not meeting your needs, you move on because your needs are more important than that relationship. And so in a consumer approach to relationships, you, you keep someone around because you have a need. You have a need to have sex, to feel good about yourself, to feel loved. And so you go, find, you go out, you find someone that will meet your need. However, a covenant approach to relationships is totally, completely different. For example, the Bible teaches us that sex is not a consumer good. It's a covenant good. It says that, that I will adjust because I made a promise in, in my marriage vows. Uh, you and our relationship is more important than my needs and feelings. In, in a covenant relationship, I am fully committing all of myself to you. My life, my body, everything about me is yours. So you know what? Uh, I have found that in, in marriage, based on covenant vows, it reminds me of the sacraments. It's not a sacrament, but it's like a sacrament in that it's an external visible sign of an internal invisible reality. So when there is physical intimacy within a marriage covenant, it is an expression of your whole life being committed. What this means is that sex outside of marriage covenant is, in a way, a lie. A destructive, blatant lie. Meaning, let me explain, it's you're expressing total commitment of your life when you know that you really aren't. So, it's like getting baptized when you and everyone else knows that you have not given your life to God, right? God designed sex to be experienced in relationship where there is exclusive loyalty, lifelong loyalty and bodily loyalty between a husband and a wife. It is an expression of total commitment 
The Christian view of sex is, is not repressive. It is not prudish. It is incredibly beautiful and wonderfully holistic. Sex is sacred. Second thing here, if you're taking notes, is that lust is a lure, right? It's a lure. Jesus teaches that sex is sacred, but lust and adultery, that the fantasy of sex or, or any sexual activity uh, with someone who is not your spouse is dangerous and destructive and can rob you of life. Lust is a lure with a giant hook in it. And so Jesus warns us and he tells us two things. First, he says that adultery roots itself deep in the heart. Verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is not just talking about a guy noticing a woman, but this is anyone looking at another person in a lustful way. He is not saying that it's wrong to think that someone is beautiful or handsome. Jesus is addressing something far more critical here. A.B. Bruce explains, the look is not casual, but persistent. The desire not involuntary or momentary, but cherished. To get this point across, he says, this can be translated as such. Everyone who looks at a woman in order to lust after her. And I've learned that the word used for lust here points to idolatry and greed. Greed is a desire for something good, like money, for selfish reasons. Not, not to be shared, but you hoard it. You gotta have it for your comfort. You gotta have it for your, your security. And so you cut corners, you overwork, always think about it, always dream about it, always fantasize about money and what you can buy with it. Here, Jesus is talking about having the same attitude towards sex. You have to have it for your comfort, for your security, always thinking about it, fantasizing about it for selfish reasons. For example, pornography is, is all about self-centeredness. I mean, you don't even need another person. It's everything the Bible says sex is not meant to be. And so like greed, it's addictive and it's all-consuming. Also, I mean, I've seen, I've seen this over many, many years in, in ministry and just through personal experience of knowing all kinds of people. It is incredibly common for people to have sex outside of marriage because they don't want to lose the other person. And it becomes real easy to justify. But, you know, even in a serious relationship where, where through sex you can be proclaiming total life commitment through sex but not, not actually give yourself in total commitment. So, like, being baptized without being committed to God is a lie. Sex outside of marriage is a lie. It is a life-uniting life uniting act without life-uniting intent. It's consumerism. It's not covenantal. 
It's for yourself. The second thing we learn about uh, lust is that it is so damaging that it requires radical action. And Jesus says in, in verses 29 through 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now that sounds pretty shocking, right? I mean, <laughs> those are some tough words. Well, I think Jesus wants to shock us here, okay? Not gratuitously, but he wants to get our attention. He wants to shock us into seeing how critical this really is. And deep down we know this, right? We know the danger. The news has exploded, absolutely exploded lately with countless stories of how selfishness can ruin sex and people. We know the danger of it. We see it. And maybe you've experienced the fallout of that. Maybe you know this personally. So Jesus calls for a radical response for our good and for our blessing and to protect us. He loves us. Now, he's not talking about literally plucking out our eyes and chopping off our hands. So what's he getting at with this, the, the eyes and the hands? So D.A. Carson says, the eye is chosen because it is looked and lusted. The hand is chosen probably because adultery, even mental adultery, is kind of a theft, a taking of what is not yours. Jesus is calling for radical, drastic action. It's often called mortification, not physical mortification. It's spiritual mortification. What does that mean? Well, John Stott says this. He says, what, what does this involve in practice? Let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, objects you see, then pluck your eyes out. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind so that you cannot see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, the things you do, or your feet, the places you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so that you could not do the things or visit the places that previously caused you to sin. That is the meaning of mortification. Why is Jesus so intense and seemingly harsh here? Why such radical action? Because lust is a lure that looks so good, but there is a hook in it, and it is damaging, it is destructive. It is dangerous and not at all what you think it is. 
And we see proof of this everywhere. Everywhere. So if it's so damaging, why is lust such a major issue? Well, it's because lust involves our major idols, our idols of, of our heart. Like the idols of, of comfort and approval. You know, people may say, you know what, I, I know it's wrong, but I, but I feel pressure from my partner. You know, what if, what if they reject me? Comfort and, and approval can be good, beautiful things, but they become destructive idols when we make them more important than God. Lust can also involve the idol of, of control. You take advantage of someone sexually for your own pleasure only to ditch them sooner or later and move on to another. Lust involves the idols of, of pleasure and comfort and control and those are not so easy to give up, are they? It's more than just lust on the surface. There are some serious heart issues going on. You know, whether you're a Christian or, or, or not, it's so easy to look at the Ten Commandments and say, sure, we can agree that it's not right to murder or steal or lie. But with sexual sin, people say, you don't understand. You don't understand how lonely I am. You don't understand how wounded I've been. You don't know my marriage. No one understands me like he does, or no one understands me like, like she does. I need this. And underneath all that are, are issues of, of comfort and control and approval. See, the danger of lust is that it promises so much, but it can't ever deliver on that promise. It can only destroy you. Sexual sin promises you, holds out a, a better life, and it looks so attractive. It seems so irresistible. And, and you think, you know what? You know, she's prettier and makes me feel better about myself. Or, or he's more romantic and more sensitive to me. Or, or she's more affectionate physically. Or, or he makes me feel attractive and sexy. Or, or he, he never sits on the couch and watches TV and ignores me. Or she never nags me. And lust lures you in with the fantasy of a better life, but it never delivers, it only destroys. You don't see the sharp hook inside that takes your life. It takes the life out of your relationship with God. It takes the life out of your relationship with your spouse. It takes the life out of your relationship with your, your family the life out of how you spend your time and even your, your, your leisure, it devastates you. So then, what happens then 
if you get hooked. Well, third, the gospel is our hope. It really is our hope. I think that even if you've found yourself agreeing mostly with the things that I've said, this is where it gets a little bit more difficult. Maybe a little bit more difficult to believe. So be prayerful as we go through this next section. In our passage, there's a particular word that Jesus uses for hell. It's the word Gehenna, which was an actual place outside of Jerusalem where garbage was continually burned. And in using this term, Jesus is telling us that one aspect of hell is unfulfilled longing, a deep, unquenchable thirst. We were built, we were designed, we are created to know God. So if we don't see God, and if we don't know God, then we will not see, and we will not know the satisfaction of our deepest, true, true deep longings of our hearts and needs being fulfilled. And lust is a way of, one of the ways that we try to fix that void and unquenchable thirst. And so here's what I want us to understand is that, is that when we struggle with lust, lust is not really our, our most important uh, problem. Lust is just a way we try to deal with our most important problem. Deep loneliness, a thirst for wanting to be loved, a desire to be accepted, to fill that emptiness and loneliness and have someone delight in you even with all of your flaws. Back in the day, G.K. Chesterton said, everyone who goes into a brothel is looking for God. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Because if you ask someone going into the brothel, are you looking for God? They'd be like, nope. What gave you that idea? In our context, we might say, Everyone who uses porn, whether they know it or not, is in a deep and profound way looking for God. It is an attempt, whether we understand it or see it or not, it's an attempt to satisfy our deepest longings and we use sexual sin if we think that it'll work for us. There is no shortage of stories Uh, people that we know, maybe our own lives or or stories that are, you know, on on like, you know, the the magazine shows or or in magazines or, or, you know, Facebook, whatever. There's no shortage of stories where we hear about people trying to satisfy their deepest longings through money or sex or substances or approval only to end up crushed and empty. They didn't realize what was really wrong until they tried everything and it didn't work. And they realized maybe there's a deeper issue here. In sex, we're looking for acceptance and connection this world can't give. 
Even in the most intimate moment, we only get a glimpse and then it's gone. The gospel teaches us that, that no one can look, no one can look at you in all of your weaknesses and flaws and, and vulnerability and then love you and see you as perfect and delight in you and, and accept you for who you are except for one. There's only one person who can say, I delight in you. I absolutely love you unconditionally. You are beautiful. You have nothing to hide. And I clothe you in my righteousness. The only one who can say that is God himself. So what is the hope of the gospel? In Jesus Christ. God's love triumphs over our lust. Edwin, Edwin Lewis Cole said, lust desires to gratify self even at the expense of others, whereas love desires to satisfy others even at the expense of self. In lust, we forsake the relationship to have the body but Jesus on the cross forsook his body to have the relationship. And instead of being a consumer, he gave himself completely for us to have a covenant relationship with us and to give us ultimate acceptance and approval and, and love. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin and was legally treated as an adulterer. And he experienced that deep, unquenchable thirst, the rejection of God the Father, so that we could be accepted. He is so committed to us that nothing, nothing will separate us from his love. Not even the destructiveness of our love and adultery. I don't think we understand how much Jesus loves his bride, the church. <laughs> Especially if we're painfully aware of our own lust and adultery. But when we see how, how Jesus meets us where we are in our deepest loneliness and our longing to be loved and, and, and accepted um, and, and he became our substitute and, and he became discarded so that we could be accepted, that is when we will know true freedom and experience true acceptance and fulfillment. Nothing else compares to that. And maybe... You might feel a little disconnect here because it just sounds too good to be true. It's not as real as something tangible that you can experience physically right here, uh, right now. My prayer is that we trust God anyway. When we don't understand, we trust him anyway. And so now, forth, because of Jesus, live in response to the gospel. 
I, I want to close with some application here, um, but I want you to know that application um, can only flow from and be empowered by the gospel. You cannot do this on your own strength. You can't do it on your own strength. So first and foremost, we all need to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. Constantly. Sexual sin starts with attraction that leads to dissatisfaction and ultimately action, physical or, or mental or even emotional. It, it never comes out of, of nowhere. Martin Luther said, you, you can't keep birds from flying overhead, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. In other words, we may not be able to stop temptation from hovering over us, but in the gospel, we can keep lust from getting a foothold as we meditate on and thank God for who Christ is and what he has, has done for you as you soak in that and you find life in that. It is fixing your eyes on Jesus. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus and not looking to all these attractive lures with hooks in them, God gives us life. He gives us freedom in Him. I've seen that. There's a YouTube video out there of like some dog competition. Maybe you've seen it. Where there's a, a run, the owner's on one end, the dog's on the other end. And there's all this bowls of food on either side of the runner and then they blow a whistle or something and the goal is to have the dog come straight to the owner without getting distracted by all the food that's everywhere. And the first dog, bang, straight to the owner. Everybody claps. It's like a German shepherd or something. And then there's like a golden retriever. Already the deck, the deck is stacked against this guy. They blow the whistle, and he starts racing to every single bull and eating as much as he can, as fast as he can, like it was a race to eat everything. I'm like, man, that is so much like us. God calls us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. He is the source of freedom. And true satisfaction. So constantly preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Secondly, guard yourself. It's just some practical, practical wisdom. Ask yourself when you struggle, where you struggle, what particular place or person or situation. Avoid the temptation if you can. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, the Apostle Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say, you know, just hang out and see what happens. You're probably strong enough. He wants you to take it seriously. He says, run. Don't set yourself up for failure. What are the situations where you're most tempted 
Maybe, you know what, you're not married yet. You're hanging out in your apartment late at night, in the dark, no one else around. You're just going to watch Netflix and relax, but you don't know what happened. It turned into Netflix and chill. Like, how did that happen? What well, keeps happening? Pay attention. Guard yourself. Use some wisdom. And seek community and accountability. This is so critical. Gospel change happens in community, not on your own. Why do you think we're promoting gospel DNA groups? We all need to experience, need help from the community for, for gospel transformation. Invite others into your life. Seek it out. People who know the gospel and love you. People who care for you and love you and will ask you how you're doing. And they won't let you justify what, what you're doing, even if you are hurting. But they love you and show how you are hurting yourself and how Jesus is better and how to make that real to you as opposed to just some theory out there to make it tangible as you wrestle through the implications of, of the gospel and the life that is in Jesus. People that you trust, people that will encourage you and strengthen you and not condemn you, remind you of who you are in Christ. When someone builds you up in the truth of the gospel, sexual sin becomes easier to resist. Seek out a brother a sister, join a gospel DNA group. Open up to someone you trust in your home group. And then stand for the sexual purity of others. Adultery and lust is about taking advantage of others. Whether we're married or not, Scripture calls us to protect and preserve the purity of, of others. So one way you do that is you pray for them and it's much more difficult to take advantage of someone when you are praying for them. Now I know we have several different groups of, of people here possibly. For those of you who are single, I want to tell you Getting married or remarried is not the answer to lust. There's a deeper issue. Lust is a false solution to our true problem. A deep longing, desire to be known. And, and anyone, single or married, can have that in the gospel of Jesus. And, and that's the good news. We just so often refuse to believe it. And there's the danger of thinking being married and having children and a home will be the ultimate solution for your loneliness. But if you're thinking, when I get married, and when I have kids, and when I have that home, then I'll be happy. It means that romance has become an idol and it will leave you empty and crushed whether you get it or not. And for those of you who are married, I'm telling you, there is a great need for strong gospel-centered marriages. Couples who grow closer to God and therefore grow closer to each other. 
as they confess to each other, as they build each other up in the gospel, reminding each other of their true identity uh, in Christ as they date each other and pursue each other and encourage each other. You know, a good defense against adultery is a good offense of, of a, a great marriage. It doesn't mean a bad marriage gives you license for adultery. That's not what I'm saying. But a good defense against adultery is a good offense in a great marriage that is gospel-centered. Now, for those of you who might have a, a spouse struggling with lust, maybe it's porn. You know, if they're here today, this is probably a very difficult message for them to sit through right now. And you can pray with love and compassion for true conviction that leads them to find strength in the gospel, that God's kindness would lead to repentance. And I want to encourage you to know that while lust is a serious sin and a damaging sin, a destructive sin, it's not an unforgivable sin. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences and necessary boundaries, but the gospel will lead you to work on your marriage and seek help, to get, seek help together to bolster that covenant relationship. And finally, for those in a marriage where there has been physical sexual infidelity, I know that your, wor your world has fallen apart. But I also want you to know that there is hope. There's more to say about this than I have time to say right now. And if you want to talk later, we can. And I invite you to do that. In John chapter 8, a woman is caught in adultery and she's brought to Jesus and a crowd of people are about to bring judgment by stoning her and and Jesus says, let anyone who has never sinned be the first one to throw a stone at her. And the result was that one by one, the crowd walked away. And finally, only two people were left. This woman and Jesus. And Jesus asks, is there no one to condemn you now? And she says, no, Lord. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. And he adds, go and sin no more. So if you're in a situation, in this kind of a situation, my plead for you is to go to Jesus. He will not condemn you because he took our condemnation on the cross. Think about that when you are tempted to condemn your spouse or think about that when you're tempted to condemn yourself know that Jesus does not condone or unfaithfulness or sweep it under the rug he says go and sin no more and start there go to Jesus together let Jesus speak into the condemnation and sin to bring healing let Jesus and his gospel and his truth be your focus. Fix your eyes upon him. May he be your anchor and allow God 
to rebuild from there. If we know anything about the gospel, we know that Jesus brings redemption. He brings restoration. He brings a very real hope in true life. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that right now in this moment that we would truly find rest in you. God, for for, for those who might not find the, the relevance of, of this message. If it goes in one ear and out the one ear and out the other, uh, I pray that you protect them. Well they they learn probably some very difficult lessons and I pray that they would turn to you in their time of desperation and brokenness. I pray that you protect them from the lure altogether. And God, for those here who are experiencing the maybe the pain or sense of loss or condemnation or hopelessness, God, I I pray that as they realize that the world cannot bring healing, but that you can. God, I pray that you protect the hearts of us all. God, I pray for godly relationships, for godly, godly marriages for godly singles, godly teenagers, God, that you would help us to fix our eyes upon you. That we might find life in you and trust you to make us whole and complete above anything else and above all others. We pray these things in your name.